This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Hello there. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm Norman B. Coming up later in the program, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to go back in time to the early part of 2020 for my first interview and possibly her very first radio interview with the lovely Arlo Parks. I want you to stay for that. First, my guest is Bradley Onishi. His book is titled Preparing for War and the subtitle The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and what comes next. Bradley, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. What an ominous title this <laughs> book has, Preparing for War. I know, I well, I'm, I'm not going to speak for you, but I know that you mean this. You actually do mean preparing for war, even though there's lots to read into this. I just want to start with the actual fact that you do mean war and that is a horrible thing to contemplate it is and I, I, by no means do i want to be hyperbolic or uh, you know say things to get uh, some you know uh, clicks or say you know th- the reason i say preparing for war is because i've studied this movement i've lived this movement and i know the rhetoric and the rhetoric is one uh, that talks about spiritual warfare cultural warfare and in some cases, actual warfare. Yes. So let's let's sort of backtrack just a little bit so my, my listeners can understand. I take this book, my takeaway, my takeaways are that this is part history, part an autobiography, and part, as we almost just touched on, a warning. And what a warning this is. So did I get those three three parts correct about my takeaway for the book? That's exactly right. I uh, I wanted to provide a history that I think goes back 60 years and provides context, but I also wanted to do so through the prism of my own experiences. I, I live this, and so I have a, an insider's view. And yeah, of course, I want to provide a warning for what I think is a scary thing. Let's just go into that just a little bit. Let's talk about Bradley Onishi and what you need, mean about living this. Uh, uh, just talk about your own experience. Sure. I uh, I grew up in Southern California, um, largely a non-religious home, a mixed race home. My dad was is Japanese American from Hawaii. My mom's a white woman from Tennessee. And so Southern California, age 14, doing teenage things, getting in trouble, suspended from school, this kind of stuff. And uh, had a girlfriend invite me to church. And uh, it was a Wednesday night Bible study. And I thought, who cares about Bible study if I can Uh, see my girlfriend. That's the goal. And um, I ended up converting and becoming very invested in the church. Um, I went from somebody who was doing uh, teenage, you know, things and and worrying his mother to uh, leading a Bible study at his school, um, evangelizing on the beach boardwalk. And by 20, I was a minister uh, full time. I was married to my high school sweetheart and I was heading towards seminary. So I wasn't just a believer. I wasn't just somebody who went to church. I, I was a leader and I gave myself in every way uh, as best as I could to my faith and my my community. I'm being terribly serious when I say this, Brad, but should I be skeptical or should we be skeptical about this this conversion? Because 
as you as you led into it, you very delicately said uh, what what got you into it was lusting after. Well, you didn't actually say lusting, but I'm going to say it: lusting after your girlfriend. Yes. So um, clearly, that was a big, big sort of positive draw for you. But but the actual fact that you actually did convert and you actually became um, religious uh, should I be skeptical about this, or was really like the lure of sex still sort of hanging over everything? If you, if you want it, you can be skeptical if you'd like, yeah. but here's what I'll say. Uh, she dumped me about two weeks later because I was uh, getting way too into church. She, you know, she was only at church to get away from mom and dad, too. So yeah. um, she dumped me and um, and I became the person who um, was, uh, as I said, kind of sex, drugs and rock and roll to. Uh, I told my friends when I entered high school that I would not um, kiss uh, again until I got married. I told them that. um my uh, entire life was devoted to Jesus. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. My mother asked me at age 16, what would you like for Christmas? And I said, mom, how much money are you going to spend? And she gave me a number and I said, okay, well, uh, I'd like you to take that money and I'd like you to send it to this organization. And I had some pamphlets in my backpack. And if we send that money here, we can buy a uh, hundred Bibles and um, some, some other literature for people who have never heard about Jesus. So please, please don't give me a Christmas present please buy Bibles for people in Nepal. Uh, same thing, same response when I was asked, do you want a letterman's jacket? I was a captain of the basketball team. And 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 I said, why would I want a letterman's jacket? That is wasted money. We could send that to people who've never heard about Jesus. So, uh, so those were the kinds of things I did as a teenager. You know, thank you for explaining that. You know, Bradley, as I'm listening to you talk, and as I read your book, I'm thinking that a lot of times we associate conversion to religion akin to addiction mm. that that it's it, there's some parallels there what's your take on that well i think that we can take that many ways depending on yeah. how we're defining religion how we're defining addiction um i think in my case what i would say is that i'm not sure if it was addiction as much as it was uh really two things that uh that really appealed to me and really were helpful. One was uh, community. And I think religion provides a sense of belonging for many people. But in addition to that, uh, I was a very, you know, I'm a professor now. I, my, my life is spent in books and thinking about big questions. Well, even as at age 14, I was the kind of person who, who wondered, you know, what's the meaning of life and why are we here? And what does it mean to be good or evil? And uh, how did the universe get created, et cetera. And uh, Church and, and and evangelical Christianity provided very clear and straightforward answers to all those questions. And looking back, uh, I will admit, I think the answers that it provides are somewhat adolescent um, in many cases. But at the time, it was a, a real sort of boon for me to think, wow, all of the existential worries that I've had have really been answered. And I get to participate in this great community. Why would I not want to do this? This makes a lot of sense. Yes. So for the context of the book, and so my listeners can fully understand, what happened? When did you get to the point where you said, ha, huh, this ain't for me? This is what what happened, Bradley? Well, uh, you know, as I mentioned, there was a kind of adolescent nature to my faith because I was in adolescence. And by the time I got to college, um, you know, I, I really did become somebody who wanted to read voraciously, learn as much as he could. And as I started studying theology and philosophy and history, 
there was a sense that many of the very clear-cut answers that I had been given uh, about the nature of the universe, about important moral issues such as abortion or uh, foreign policy and war, uh, about heaven and hell, a lot of that uh, binary thinking started to become incoherent for me. And I started to think this: there has to be more complexity to this because we have really reduced things to either or, this or that. And it really seems like that that doesn't make much sense. And so the further along I got on that road, the harder it was for me to intellectually stay in the movement and then politically stay in the movement and then eventually just to be there at all. And so I found my way out. I should let my listeners know that in preparing for war, you go into great detail in in, in every chapter. You you tell us a great deal about yourself and about your religiousity. Is that is that a word? I, I don't know. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's what I think is is very interesting about your book, that you don't you don't wash over things. You tell us you tell us the gritty details and it, it, all the way through. And I really appreciate that. But there's something that I, we've got to get clear for my listeners. And that is just in a I guess in a sentence. Can you explain what we mean when we say white Christian nationalism? Yeah. White Christian nationalism is the idea that the United States is a country built for and by Christian people. And the white part is often implicit, but it really does make a difference. According to the data, white Christian nationalists believe that the country used to be great, used to have a city on a hill tenor, but somewhere along the lines, things went wrong. And so they, what they expect is an apocalyptic demise of the United States, that if they don't act quickly to return the country to God, then the country will, uh, will will see its destruction very soon. And thus, they need to act quickly and, I would say, with extremism. Now, I know what's going to happen here with a lot of my, my listeners are going to say yes, but that's all very well, but it's so hypocritical, particularly in the age of Mr. T. Um, I'd just like to get your take, and, and this is a difficult one, really, because there's so much we can go into here, so much we can delve into, but just your quick take on the whole idea of white Christian nationalism is, in fact, totally hypocritical. Um, so I think there's, a, I, I, under, I understand the impulse. The idea yes. would be, okay, you are doing these things, voting for these people, you are ha holding these policy positions, and yet you claim to be a follower of the Jesus who talked about feeding the poor and welcoming the stranger and taking care of the vulnerable. Uh, you're not living up to the golden rule. You're not loving your neighbor and so on. And so I, I understand, you know, as somebody who's a scholar of religion, one of the things that we talk about quite often is that religion is not equivalent to belief. Religion is about identity. Religion is about cultural um, uh, sense of who you are. It's about that the stories we tell about our countries, our communities, and ourselves. And so I understand the impulse to reduce everything to, well, your beliefs don't line up with your actions. And I agree. Don't get me wrong. I'm not here to yes, deny that. Yes, yes. But I also think that if we take a, a more multidimensional view, we might see how and why these communities um, have taken th these tracks and therefore combat them in more effective ways. Because they scare me, as my, my book title uh, lets on. And so my goal is to find more effective ways of understanding and resisting and finding other ways to protect our democracy in this country. Yes. My guest is Bradley Onishi. His book is titled Preparing for War, the subtitle. Listen to this, everyone. It's very important. The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. I want to get into what comes next in just a little while. But 
let's right now concentrate on some of the history, how this came to be. And as as I've already said, you go into great detail here, and 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 it's easy to understand. I I I should let you know that um, in the UK where I'm from, we have in high school we have. O levels and A levels. These are kind of you may know that these are kind of exams that you take to get into college or or whatever. And for my A levels, that's the higher level. One of the subjects I took was what we call religious instruction. So I I immersed myself in learning about religions, and and quite like you, it led me to ask even more questions. The more I more I learned, the more questions I had. Yeah. So let's get go into just a little bit of the history, because this wasn't always the case. We didn't always have something called white Christian nationalism, or, or did we? I think we could really start this history uh, going back centuries uh, on this continent. We, we could talk about 1619. We could talk about 1776. I start the book in the 1960s because it really does help us just form a modern memory of, of where we've been and where we are now. Uh, and so if I look at the 1960s in this country, uh, we have a lot of movements uh, and advancements that, that most Americans consider very positive. The Civil Rights Movement, we have uh, the Voting Rights Act, we have uh, sweeping immigration reform. The Feminine Mystique is published in 1963, and there are uh, uh, ongoing uh, women's liberation movements. Uh, Stonewall is in 1969, and there were, of course, uh, many uh, landmark events and uh, organ organi organizations of queer liberation before that. And so for many of us, th this is a time of great progress that is incomplete and yet uh, very important. Well, the the 1960s are precisely when the modern white Christian nationalists thinks the country went astray. This is when we went away from God, when we took the Bible out of schools, prayer was no longer allowed, the schools were integrated, which is a big part of this story, and uh, women and people of color and immigrants started to really take power and have representation in the economic and political realms. And to the white Christian nationalists, that signals that something is very, very wrong and something has gone awry. And so the 1960s are really the time we see a counter-revolution take hold. This is when the white Christian nationalist decides this uh, they are going to take back the country and they are going to have to do so by any means possible because it is in danger of losing itself. And so the 1960s are the the, the beginning point of my, my telling of this story. Yes. Yes. It's those damn hippies and that rock and roll <laughs> music. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Bradley, so there's a sort of a, a kind of overall general opinion, I guess, that uh, uh, there's the elites on the East Coast and the West Coast. And then there's this like deep bed of white Christian national nationalism in basically in the South or in the hinterlands in in. I mean, for instance, if you go into the countryside in in Northern California, you're going to find enclaves of white oh, yes. nationalists. Yes. Uh, why do you think that we have that after doing your research for the book and, and putting all the information in? Why do you think we have this kind of this thought divide about there's elitists on the West and the East and the, the rest of the country is is full of white Christian nationalists? I think it's an easy, uh, it's an easily uh, kind of formulated uh, divide, and it's easy on on television or in in very you know uh, short segments on in the media to say, oh yeah, of course, uh, California and New York are liberal, and 
uh, and the Midwest and the South are uh, are not. And that's just how the country is. And one of the things that I try to explain in the book is that I'm from Southern California and you know, migration patterns in the mid 20th century changed the country forever. And one of the things they did is they made Southern California really the epicenter of modern American conservatism. And so the Southern, Calif- Southern California is the land that gives us Barry Goldwater in many ways, it's, uh, or at least makes him a, a, a viable GOP presidential nominee. It's the land that gives us Richard Nixon. My hometown is Richard Nixon's hometown, and my church is Richard Nixon's church. Uh, It's the land that gives us Ronald Reagan, uh, the land that uh, celebrates uh, John Wayne. You know, the the airport in Orange County, California, is John Wayne Airport. And John Wayne, if you know anything about him, was a overwhelmingly conservative man. And so uh, I think that divide is too reductive, and I think it really covers over the complexity uh, of this country and, and the ways it has developed politically. Yes, absolutely. I'm glad that you pointed that out. You know, in reading your book, I I was fascinated, particularly you just talked about Barry Goldwater. I was fascinated by the fact that you do a a kind of equals Trump, that Goldwater wasn't intending to run for president like Trump until it seemed like this would be a grand idea, particularly for those people around him. Just touch on Goldwater for a moment, Bradley, because... This is a fascinating part of the story. So 1964, uh, we really have a situation where the Republicans think that the nominee is going to be Nelson Rockefeller. And Nelson Rockefeller is, of course, the heir to the great Rockefeller name and fortune. And and yet here is this Arizona senator, this man from the deep southwest of the the country, again, a a region that does not fit into some of those easy divides we just talked about. And Barry Goldwater is is somebody who... uh, presents himself as an everyman. He's a cowboy, but he was really born to a rich family. Um, His sister says he never read a book cover to cover and he runs for president. And when he's on the campaign trail, he is magnetic. He is brusque. He's hyper masculine. He's got a deep baritone voice and a square jaw. He uh, says bombastic things. He says that maybe we need to use nuclear weapons in Vietnam and he tells people in the South that sure, black and white folks should live together, but he's not going to sign any laws that make them do that. You know, wink, wink. If you don't want to end Jim Crow, no problem. He was the kind of person who was just uh, irresistible to many when he showed up in their town for a rally. Well, he runs for president and surprising to everyone, including the Republican Party, he wins. And he says something very famous or infamous in his acceptance speech. He says, Uh, extremism and defense of liberty is no vice, meaning that we are in a time, Republican Party, where extremism is the modus operandi that we need if we are going to take our country back. And for me, this really sets the tone for everything I'm talking about with this counter-revolution of the 1960s. He's saying to his comrades, extremism is how you have to operate. Yes. And I will I will argue that that has never been forgotten in the 60 years since, and it is still how much of the American right is operating. Yes. Little um, little point of interest here. Uh, when Goldwater was running, I then was uh, in my late teens preparing to go to art school. And because of my interest in arts and, and graphics, because I wanted to be a graphic designer, I would clip out illustrations from magazines and what have you, And the Sunday Times magazine, it was the first Sunday magazine, color magazine, 
And there was a story about Goldwater, not a big story, but a story that, that focused on Goldwater. And the illustration was of Goldwater's face with a swastika behind him. And I always found that to be just, I mean, it just stuck. I've still got that illustration in a file somewhere. But as you can probably imagine, being a teenage boy in London at the time, I had no idea who Goldwater was. I mean, it meant nothing to me, but that illustration stuck with me. And and wow. I just see, see your look. Yes. So I don't know if that was a British point of view or whether that was, because I, 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 that does seem quite extreme. It does. And, and you know, whether or not that is justified uh, can be debated. But I, what I do think it points out is how uh, the British and perhaps European perspective uh, was really wary of any leader, American or otherwise, who was uh, somehow hinting towards anything that felt like authoritarianism, especially in the decades after World War II. And so um, I, I'm not sure, you know, I'll get emails and people say, oh, that's not justified. That's fine. Yes, but I think what you're pointing to illustrates the the, the perception of Goldwater that uh, many held. Correct. Yes, because we only have a limited amount of time, Brad. I want to I want to now move on to the specter of Mr. Trump and how the the white nationalist Christian nationalist embraced not just this person, but also, I guess, not even what he stood for or stands for, but his. The, the sort of, well, I said specter, and that kind of probably kind of sums it up in some respects. Yeah. Let me get your take on the embracing of, of Trump and Trumpism. So I completely understand, going back to your one of your previous questions, that it seems hypocritical that a, a Christian person would vote for Trump, and especially a very conservative evangelical or Catholic, because he is not a religious person by many markers. He's divorced uh, uh, many times or twice he he's there we could go down the litany of sexual yeah. scandals and other uh other things but let's approach it this way um if we have a counter-revolution that begins in the 1960s the concern is really that the country has lost its way because people who don't deserve to be in power are now rushing to the top immigrants people of color people who are are members of the lgbtq community uh those who um the white Christian nationalist thinks it's okay for them to be in the country, but there is no sense that they should have any power uh, or that they should wield control over the social order. And so they are scared. They're scared of losing their place. They're scared of losing their privilege from the 1960s forward. And this leads them to vote for the likes of Ronald Reagan instead of Jimmy Carter. This leads to the, uh, the, the pushing forward of George W. Bush. Well, in 2008, you get Barack Obama, and Barack Obama was like made in a lab if you wanted to scare a white Christian nationalist. He's like a prototype because he is a mixed race person. Uh, his father is Muslim. His father is from another country. Uh, he grows up largely in Hawaii, and Hawaii is sort of that far off state in in the Union that many don't really consider part of the country, as you, you know. And so he has a black family. He has a black wife. While he is president. Same-sex marriage is legal uh, across the land. Everything that they feared comes true in the presidency of Barack Obama. And so when it comes to Donald Trump, what they see is somebody not who holds their morals, not who holds their theology, but finally someone who will brutalize their enemies in a way that will set the country right. That someone who has the bar bar barbarism 
the brutality, somebody who is a bully. And that is what they want because they tried Ronald Reagan. They tried George W. Bush. And, you know, when it came to Mike Huckabee or Ted Cruz, they had the instinct. That's not the bully we need. Yes. And I'm tired of waiting. I'm And I'm tired of, of, of holding my breath, hoping the nation returns to what it's going to be. So in extreme times, you have to take extreme measures. In apocalyptic times, you have to take apocalyptic measures. And Donald Trump represented that. And so they went in full force in 2016 and once again in 2020. And uh, here we are. With your explanation, it, it seems so simple. I mean, it's such an obvious thing in some respects, as you explained it. But at the same time, it's just profoundly just, I mean, it's just awful at the same time. My guest, Bradley Onishi, his book, Preparing for War, the Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. I have to ask you about the epilogue in your book, uh, Bradley, because you begin that chapter by saying, could I have been there on January the 6th? Could you have been there, Bradley? As I watched the the images and the footage, uh, that question haunted me because I remembered the, the the teenager who converted, and I remembered the way that he devoted himself wholeheartedly to his church, to his movement, to his community. And I thought to myself, uh, I can imagine a version of me thinking that it was my duty as a Christian and as a patriot to be in Washington, D.C. on that day. I also thought about time. And if I had converted at a, uh, if I had converted in 2018, Yes, And when I was brought into the church, and like many have been, uh, unfortunately, not only did I hear about Jesus and uh, and God and uh, and the rest, but if I had heard about QAnon, if I had heard about uh, the ways that the, uh, the Democrats were demons, if in 2020 I had heard that the election had been stolen, what I'm getting at here is that the environment in which I converted was was quite extreme, but it's even accelerated now. And if I had converted... Uh, in in the Trump years, not only would I have heard about the Bible and Genesis and our creator, I would have heard about a litany of conspiracies, disinformation, and a sense of demonizing our political opponents that might have spurred me to think that being part of January 6th was not um, something that signified a crime or, or treason, but signified my God-commanded duty as a man, as a as a Christian, and who some and as an American, and and that frightens me a lot. I appreciate the way you explain that in the book because it's so easy for us that are on, I guess we can say the other side that thinks QAnon is completely laughable. It's just it's cartoonish. Yet at the same time, as you just said, and as you say in the book, it's so incredibly important to people that believe as. Christian nationalists, white Christian nationalists at that. What for you would you like the takeaway to be? I gave you my three points at the beginning of our conversation, but for you, Bradley Onishi, who's written Preparing for War, what would you like for the for the reader, the number one takeaway? I, I think it's to know that, um you know, the best position to be in when you're in war, Charles Creel says this, is is when your opponent doesn't know you are. Uh -huh. And I guess I just I want everyone to know how uh, many in the 
American political landscape are thinking. They have they have thought about being in a war for 60 years. And so when it comes to electoral politics, when it comes to culture wars, when it comes to uh, attempting a coup on January 6th, these are all outworkings of that mindset. And I know that for many people, the 2022 midterms were not nearly as dire as perhaps we had expected. And many of the election denying candidates and Trumpist candidates lost. And, and that was yes. good news. But I would say that that sigh of relief uh, needs to be a momentary one because uh, we still have, as you said earlier, the specter of the 45th president, as well as those who would like to take his place, uh, such as Ron DeSantis there in Florida and uh, and others. And so this is not a movement that is going to think to themselves, well, we didn't do as well in the midterms as we hoped. I guess that's it. Let's pack up and go home and find another thing to do. This is one that will continue to think we are here to take our country back by any means possible. And however long it takes, whatever it takes, we will do that. And so we will not stop until we accomplish those goals. I think the overturning of Roe v. Wade is a good example. And so uh, that's the takeaway. That's the thing that I hope that uh, folks will understand as they walk away from the book. Without going through the list of names of some of the main leaders in the GOP right now, it does strike me that most of these headline names come across as opportunists. I'm, I'm curious to know, one, if you see the same thing, and two, do the white Christian nationalists completely overlook that? Is that something they choose not to see? I think I think it, uh, it depends on the case on whether or not it's opportunism or if it's a it's a baked into that person's sort of uh, DNA or identity. I could go through some of those cases, but I'll just say that uh, to your second point, in many cases, it does not matter because right. if you are the candidate who will do what they want in terms of this battle or this war, then you are on their side. The goal is power. It is not piety. It is not identity. And so if you can provide them with power and advancement in this conflict, then you will be their person, regardless of whether or not you have been attending church your entire life and read the Bible every day, or if you just started that because uh, it's kind of uh, a, a nice thing to do on the campaign trail to tell your potential voters. As long as you are going to do their bidding, they will uh, hail you as somebody to vote for. Yes. I have to ask you this before we go. Have you had any reaction yet from the white Christian nationalists? I always do. I have, uh, over the last four or five years, done a, a popular podcast, and I've been writing about this for a long time. And so yeah. uh, I do get emails uh, that are are quite uh, distasteful, I'll say. And there are also many people in my former church who are shall we say, not a fan of the kind of work I'm doing now. Uh, but I, I'll be honest and say that um, if there were not people who, uh, if, if there was no one unhappy with me, I would not think I was doing a very good job. So I take it as a sign that uh, I'm doing something right when uh, when some folks find what I'm saying to be um, a little bit threatening to a, a movement that I take to be quite toxic. Yes. Brad, one very last question, and that is, I'm not going to say you, uh, well, I'm just presuming that this was a, 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 not a fun book to write, but I have a feeling that you enjoyed writing this book. But I'd just like to get a sense from you about the, I guess, 
the 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 feeling that you had when you were writing the book, putting the book together, and then finish the book. What was the? As I said, I don't want to say fun because I'm sure it wasn't. But at the same time, there has to be a certain element of enjoyment when you put this book together. There, there really was, and I think a lot of it came from the the kind of hybrid genre. Uh, it was it was gratifying and, and in some sense cathartic to write yeah, yeah. in the form of memoir and to share some of the stories and help others understand what it's like to live in this movement. Um, and I, it was also gratifying because. I think there's so many misconceptions about how we arrived at this place in our politics. And so to provide a, a longer uh, window into that, I think was really gratifying, but it was a lot of work. And obviously the the material is, is somewhat dire at times. And, you know, you have to really kind of find ways to, uh, to, to, to smile at the end of the day because uh, this work can be consuming. So yeah, it, it's a, it's a roller coaster, but I'm really happy about the result. You know, I often tell people this and I tell my listeners that when I'm reading a book because I'm preparing for a, for an interview, and I call them a conversation, I take the book with me. So this book, Preparing for War, when I've been I'm stopping in a coffee shop or, or wherever, I've, I've got the book with me. And often I, <laughs> I kind of perversely do this on purpose just to see if I get a reaction from a barista yeah. or somebody sitting by yeah. And I have to tell you, Brad, I've had a lot of reactions to this yeah. one. People say, preparing for war? And then yeah. I read the subtitle and they're like, ooh. And you know, and it's really interesting because some people get it immediately and other people, you can tell they're like, oh, you know. Yeah. And so I'm just, again, I said that was my last question. Here's just a kind of a follow-up. But just the title alone did that take you a little while to sort of settle on that and say, yes, this is where we're going to go with this? Or was that a sort of a conundrum for you? No, there was some debate with, uh, you know, family and friends and editors and and things. Yeah. But I, I was pretty clear from the beginning that I wanted to uh, to have a title that conveyed the ways that for six decades, uh, this white Christian nationalist movement has been preparing for war that this has been and it is part of their rhetoric you know i can i can quote goldwater about extremism i can talk about james dobson who says that you know young people are the the foot soldiers in the second civil war and those kinds of citations are all throughout the book and so uh, it might be startling or alarming or unnerving when when you first read it but um i do think it makes sense if you if you actually see the details and and the story i'm telling Okay, I've got to ask you this. <laughs> have to ask you this. So are you optimistic about the future, even though your title is preparing for war? You know, uh, I tell my students, uh, there's this quote, and, and they're young enough that they often don't know it, right? From Martin Luther King Jr., the arc of the universe bends towards justice. And of course, it's a very well-known uh, citation. And when people ask me if I'm hopeful, I say... <clears throat> The arc of the universe bends towards justice if we walk that way. And I think there are signs that many of us are walking that way and trying to walk that way together, uh, whether that is uh, electing trans uh, candidates in state legislatures, openly gay governors across the country. Uh, you know, we have an Asian-American woman who is mayor of Boston. We have a black woman who is mayor of Wilmington, North Carolina, which is a uh, a place that's historically tried to prevent black people from voting. Uh, I could give those examples all day. And I think what they point to is many people are trying to walk arm in arm toward uh, uh, justice, but we have to walk. It's not fate. It's not destiny. 
And uh, it's something that you have to keep moving. Otherwise, it won't happen. So I am hopeful, but I also know that uh, it requires uh, exercise and and daily movement to to get to where we want to go. Bradley Onishi, thank you so much for writing the book. And thank you for being a guest at Life Elsewhere. The title of Bradley's book is Preparing for War, the Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. Bradley Onishi, thank you so very much. I do appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Next up, my early interview from 2020 with the very wonderful Arlo Parks. Listen carefully. Uh, excuse me while I rave. This is Arlo Parks with a debut single, Cola. Coming up, a Life Elsewhere exclusive when we preview Arlo's forthcoming single. That comes out in February. It really is an absolute pleasure to welcome to Life Elsewhere, Arlo Parks. Thank you very much for having me. What great music! Ah, thank you very much. Yeah, it's my first, my first single, so my first little baby out into the world. Oh, but it's well, you are, you've got a lot to be proud of. It's excellent stuff indeed. So let's, let's find out about you. I detect a slight little accent there. Um, I'm not, I mean, I'm from a a wide range of places, but I'm born and bred in London. Oh, you are? Um, Okay. Yeah, I learned to speak French before I learned English. Did you? Ah, It might be a little bit of that. Could be that, yes. Okay. Ah, how did that come about? Did you learn to speak French before you did English? Um, so my mum grew up in Paris and so she's half French, half Chadian and she came over here and just like when we're growing up around the house, she just decided to teach us that. And then obviously I went to school in London. Yeah, fantastic. Wow. So that's, so that's terrific then. So you do, do you use French these days very much? Um, I mean, in terms of music, not really, but I obviously speak it around the house with my mum and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. So let's hear a little bit about you, about growing up and coming from London, getting into music. Just tell us a little bit of background. Um, so I started playing the piano when I was around six or seven. And that kind of, along with my dad being a massive jazz head and like playing a lot of like Chet Baker, Miles Davis, Coltrane in the house, that kind of sparked my love of music. And when I was around 13, I picked up the guitar and started writing some slightly dodgy looking back on its songs but um (laughs) yeah yeah. um yeah so from then I just kind of branched in I was always interested in poetry and writing short stories and stuff so I kind of just put two and two together and started practicing in my room as well as production and yeah just kind of went from there Went from there so the single that we've been playing cola and I've been listening to more music of yours that I discovered um talk to me about cola because it to me and I don't know if I've got this right or not but to me it just seems very emotive it seems like there's a there's a love affair gone wrong here tell me about it yeah exactly so um it was kind of a mix of different things. It kind of was sparked off by a conversation that I had with my friend where she was seeing this stereotypical like bad boy uh. who um, would you know, go off being naughty and then come back to her with flowers and kind of expected that to fix everything. Right. And that kind of got me thinking of how like people are allowed to just get away with things and how like 
certain things such as cheating can really like cause a lot of pain. And um, I was also reading a book which had similar themes. And so I just sat down with my friend Luca and we just sat in his living room and I wrote a poem and then I made the song out of it. Ah, so tell me about the instrumentation and recording it. Um, so we were just, he came over from um, L.A., and so he just had like an interface and a bass guitar, uh, rhythm guitar, sorry, electric guitar. And he just kind of laid it down. We were thinking of some chords and then he just had it there. And I kind of, I do play guitar, but yeah. he is much more proficient at it than <laughs> I am. So I just kind of let him take the reins on this one. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'd been listening to a lot of kind of like, trip hop so i wanted like right. a really cool break to kind of give it a rhythm that sounded a bit like a heartbeat in a way right. so yes he kind of threw that in and yeah you know as i'm listening to the record and i think this is what caught me caught my attention and i think it's what's catching other people's attention as well is that it's it's the way you're singing it's the it's the phrasing that you're using were you aware of that as you were doing it? Because it just seems to um, me to be, to be it's, it's almost stylized, except it comes across very naturally. Yeah, honestly, I didn't, I wasn't really thinking about it as I did it. It was a kind of like one or two take thing. And I just tried to put myself in the shoes of someone who was both like looking back in, in a way nostalgically at the relationship that they had with someone, but as well as somebody who was like in a lot of pain. And I guess that just kind of translated into how I sang it. I wasn't really thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Have, have, have other people mentioned that to you, that it sounds... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they have. It's interesting, actually. Yeah. So that makes me question whether, whether you, where you go from here, whether you sort of keep in that kind of mode or you've got some other ideas where you want to develop with your, with your singing. Um, yeah, I do have, so <clears throat> the single that's coming out in January is in a similar vein, but I have kind of branched out into, so the EP will be out in spring, so there are a couple more songs okay. to come, and I have kind of branched out into a couple slightly different genres. I think my, the tone of voice that I use is kind of like a signature thing for me. It's yes. just kind of naturally how I sing. Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, I guess we'll see. I think the reason why I'm kind of trying to branch into different genres as well is because it kind of reflects the kind of music that I listen to because my taste is quite eclectic, I think. Well, let's talk about that. Cause I, I, oh, okay. I, yeah, because I, I know that everybody has influences. Everybody listens to different kinds of things and whatever. Yeah. And, and I, I'm just not going to sort of sort of surmise what you listen to, but I'd just be very curious to know what does, what rings your bell? <laughs> what rings my bell? Um, so, I mean, right now I've been listening to a lot of, um, so I've been listening to Boy Genius well, the, oh, mm. with Phoebe Bridges, Julian Baker, Baker, sorry, and also a lot of MF Doom, which is very, they're two very different styles, but um, I've also been going back into some more old school stuff, so yeah. like The Cure, The Strokes, a little bit of um, Otis Redding as well, so it's it's all sorts, really. Cool, excellent. I want to talk to you about the future. This is always a sort of a curious thing to talk to somebody that's sort of basically relatively new onto the scene. Yeah, completely but I, new. I bet yeah. you've got lots of ideas about it. What we're going to do, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk more with Arlo Parks about her future right after this. Mm -hmm. 
love to hear what you have to say. Write to this address, info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. If you're just joining us, my guest is a very, very special talent. Her name is Arlo Parks, and I discovered a single by her called Cola, and we've been playing it a lot on both our shows, on the talk show and on the music show, and we've been getting an incredible response, and I, I thought to myself, we've just got to chat to this lady, because there's something about her voice, there's something about what she's doing that just really, I'm so curious about it. So here she is. Uh, Arlo, you, you are... Right at the beginnings of things, this is a this is a whole big adventure for you, right? Indeed, yeah, indeed. So the future is that something that you you're sort of you're looking at, you're planning, or you're just going where it goes? Um, I guess I do have a couple of goals that I'd like to achieve eventually. I mean, playing in America somewhere would be great. Mm. Um, you know, support tours, but that honestly, I'm kind of being. I'm I'm riding the wave on this one because obviously it's the first single that I put out officially, and I guess I'm just testing the waters and seeing where things take me. Yes. Um, but yeah, I guess that's about it. And you're getting, as I've already said, you're getting such a lot of. Here's me raving on about it, and I know that I'm not the only <laughs> one. It must feel good though to know that you're doing something that people are just uh, excited about hearing. Yeah, it does feel good, and I've been getting messages from people telling me that they've managed to connect with the song, or that yeah. it's reflecting on something they're going through, and that's always amazing. Yeah, you know, I, I'm um, one big thought for me when I'm listening again, going back to Cola, and, and we've already established that it's, it's the the lyrics and just the way you're singing, the phrasing, and just the tonality of it. It's just got this emotive mm. feel. I'm I'm thinking to myself about writing and about uh, about um, what you what you're putting down and what's the process for you? What's the process? So it depends. I think usually I'll be inspired by something that somebody said or something that I've read, and I'll just write for ten minutes, just without stopping, like all my ideas on that theme mm -hmm. and then I'll pick out some key images that from what I've written that I like and then I'll just refine it and try and make sure that by the end of it I could sum up what the song means in one sentence and that's kind of how it goes you know whenever I hear somebody whose music I think is so exciting and just really refreshing and, and I'm excited about it one of the first things that I do is that I send out um, if not my program, then a copy of the song to people I think would be interested in it. And I've been sending it out to a number of different people, people that are in the business, and they've all been, mm. the response has been, oh, this is incredible. This is great stuff indeed. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, and I, well, we'll talk about that maybe and in 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 go into that in a bit deeper. But uh, for you, for Arlo Parks, um, being in the studio, is the studio a, a comfortable place for you? Um, yes, it is. I mean, it's something that I'm not really that used to because right. for like two years, I've just been doing it from my bedroom. Yes. And so going into a kind of official studio space was strange for me at the beginning. But I think I just have my methods of how I write. So right. they kind of translate in any setting, to be honest. Which leads me now to ask you about performing live. Any thoughts about that? Um, well, I think... Performing live is something that's pretty special to me because it's an opportunity to give 
firstly connect with people um, in a real life setting because obviously I know that people well there are people listening to my songs that connect to it but face to face I think it's it's something special and you can really translate your energy and kind of perform it as if you know you were in like some kind of theater is about performance in the same way that if you're an actor and I I really enjoy that so for you performing live is 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 obviously as different to being in the studio do you react to an audience is an audience something that you're looking for for reaction from um yeah I think so I think it's always fun to when I'm performing to kind of like look through the crowd and like make eye contact with individuals and I do like to kind of make people make people really stop and like listen as cliche as it sounds to kind of connect with them on a personal level of course other people other performers have you thought about and this always comes into my mind when when I'm listening to a to a great piece of music is about you performing with other people or is anybody you'd like to sing along or anybody's songs that you would like to sing um any songs um so I think there's an artist right now called Puma Blue he's from South London and he kind of has this jazzy it's it's difficult to describe but it's kind of has this like smoky hazy feel I think his vocals remind me of like Jeff Buckley or uh, oh. Chet Baker and I love I honestly I'd love I think we're hopefully fingers crossed we'll be doing some kind of collaboration next year but um I'd love to sing that and maybe if I could manage to do uh, any of the jazz standards justice I think that would Yes. I really enjoy that. Oh, I could, hear, I could hear you doing that. I could hear you. Yes, absolutely. I could see you now doing that. That would be fantastic. <laughs> so you, yeah. did, you did mention about coming to America. And, uh, of course, yeah. uh, I, I think a lot of performers in the UK often think about that as a big sort of stepping stone. But before we get to that, let me just ask you about London because it's my mm. hometown, but I've lived in America now for an awful long time. But I, I always tell people that I think that there is an incredible energy in London. There always has been, and, and it, I, it seems to me that it still exists to this day with people mm. like yourself and the names that you've mentioned. Talk to me about London, what, you, what your views of London are. Um, I think that, obviously, since I've grown up there it's kind of become a it's been it's probably one of my biggest inspirations the people in it all the different parts even even places that you wouldn't necessarily I think the best thing about London is that you can turn a corner and find something completely strange and unique and the number of different types of people from different backgrounds different cultures different music scenes honestly I think I think it inspired me to create in a way because I wanted to capture all the different facets of people. And I think London really represented that for me, just the diversity of it. Oh, yeah, you you summed that up so incredibly well. You know, as you were talking about that, I was also thinking about you saying that you spoke French in the early part of your life. And I'm just thinking about how Cola, I'm just wondering if you've had any response from France because uh, Parisians will love this. Yes, yes, I have indeed. Um, I got played on Radio Nova and there have been some French people messaging me in. I, I always respond to them in French and they, ah, <laughs> they get slightly surprised. But um, yeah. telling me that, yeah, that they've enjoyed the sound. And I think also I am inspired by some like French greats like Edith Piaf. Oh, is, of course, yeah. Or my mum's 
my mum always used to play her and I think she's definitely inspired my sound so I think because it's part of my culture and who I am yeah. a little bit of Frenchness yeah. has kind of infiltrated into it I yeah, I love your eclectic references that you mention. I think it's fabulous. It really is. On a on a regular day for you, um, writing, singing, performing, um, there's a lot of energy that you have to put into it. A lot of concentration, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Are there, yeah, are there, there any is. parts of it that you that you don't like? Um, hmm. any parts of like the process of making yes, music or yes. just the business yes or, yeah um i guess the, probably the business side of things in terms of like going through contracts and thinking about financing and stuff because yeah. i think i always had quite a naive idea of music that you just kind of you just made it and then if people liked you then they you know they bought it and that was how it is but i think it's a bit more complicated now and i think yes i that part of things, although it's necessary because, you know, to make a living, Absolutely. I don't really enjoy it as much. You know, it's interesting that you say that because over the years I've done, uh, I've done lots and lots of interviews with all kinds of people and big names to, to up, up and coming artists like yourself. And one thing mm-hmm. that always comes up is, and I remember doing a, an interview with, I won't say the name, but a very, very famous um, keyboard player who yeah. only got paid £20 a week for years, mm. for years on end, and he loved playing, but he didn't realise that he should have been asking for a lot more money, and his manager was mm. just, you know, the record company and all that. So you've got a good outlook on it, I think, Carlo. <laughs> yeah, I think, because I, I teamed up with my manager, Ali, and his label, um, Beatnik, and they kind of opened my eyes to what because you you need to have a a sense of of how to just how to maneuver in the business yeah. and to realize the fact that it is a business and although music is beautiful and a pure art form whatever at the end of the day in order to make a living for it and to be able to do it every day then you do need to have a grasp on the money side of things Arlo Parks is my guest. We're talking to her via the magic of Skype. That one was called Super Sad Generation. Great stuff indeed. And really, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so impressed by your music. And I, I sometimes I feel like I'm sounding like a fanboy, you know, and I, and I sort of... <laughs> <laughs> a is, fan boy oh well i appreciate which it which is a bit odd for a granddad but that's you know <laughs> <laughs> but, but no it's it's i this is the thing and i and i just wish more people would do that is just be when they're enthusiastic just be enthusiastic don't worry about it and that's the that's the way i feel and that's why we got you on the program we talked about the future we talked about performing live we talked about some influences what haven't we talked about that you think is important with you and your music? Um, I think the fact that I take a lot of inspiration from other mediums of art. So I watch a lot of films and especially, so my favourite, I would say my favourite film at the moment 
is either Grand Budapest Hotel oh, or oh. Nocturnal Animals. And I think, in a way, I tr- in my music, I try and create like quite vivid scenes, almost as if you were watching a film. Yes. Like a cinematic aspect, as you said before. And so, yeah, I have that that link and I watch a lot of films. I write a lot of songs after I watch a film. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. Do you just write on on a notepad or on paper or do you put it on a computer? Oh, it's always got to be on a notepad. I I bring my notepad everywhere and I'm Good for you. I love that. That's so important, isn't it? Yeah. Mm, Definitely. Do you draw as well? Do you paint or draw? I draw. I draw. Yeah. It's all pretty abstract things, but it is something that I like to do. I wouldn't say I'm the next Picasso, but I definitely enjoy it. <laughs> Good for you. Send us some of your drawings. We'd love to see. Oh, yeah, I will. If there was one person in the world that you could just go up on stage with, it could be anybody, any any kind of music, is there anybody that you just go, oh, God, I just... And this can be sort of like a huge, big star or anybody that you just want to... you just like to perform with up on stage. <sighs> wow. That's difficult. I would say... Okay, I'd have to say the Arctic Monkeys. Oh. Because, which is, which, you know, I think it's because the first album that I ever bought with my own money on my little iPod Touch, <laughs> I was like 11 years old, was the first Arctic Monkeys record. And I think that would really be a, a peak time for me if yeah. I managed to get on stage with them. Yeah. yeah. Massive inspiration. All right, here's a little sort of personal thing. What do your family think of, of, of your talents and your abilities? They, they're very supportive of me. I think the fact that I'm still at school uh, yeah. means there's a little bit of concern about how those two clash. But, right. you know, they have it on uh, in the kitchen and they congratulate me on everything that's going on. So ah, I can that's, ask them that's so lovely. And, and you just mentioned about going to school. So for you at school, any sort of aspirations there, sort of where education takes you? Um, well, I'm hoping to do English literature at uh-huh. university right. um, in London so that I can, you know, be with the London music scene and keep going on that. Yes. Um, but yeah, because words and writing and like language has always been a big thing for me. English is always what I wanted to do. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully if my A-levels go well do you I write, don't fail. Do you, write po- <laughs> do you write poetry? I do. Yeah, I, do I thought you did. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I I read a lot of poetry as well, I would say. Um, I quite enjoy some modern poetry. I'm not sure if you know uh, Rupi Kaur yes. or Nayara Wahid. The kind yes. of short poems, yes. I really appreciate that because while some people would say that poetry has to be, you know, a big, long thing with loads of structures, I think when you can make something a poem and it's just a sentence yes i think that's like an art in itself oh absolutely and yes the economy of words i love exactly. that yes and that sort of ties in with music doesn't it because i yeah, think you've, you've achieved that i think with cola i think that's there's a sort of a an, an economy of words in that song yeah definitely i think sometimes i try and go with the more is less kind of thing and try and be I just don't think, I think waffles sometimes, obviously descriptions are good, but (laughs) when you're just kind of putting in words for the sake of it, just to fill it up, I don't think that's as effective. So I like to just kind of not make it, not make it sparse, but make it just like 
pretty direct. You conjure up some wonderful images in Cola, and, and uh, you just said the when well, I said the economy of words, and you said more is uh, less is more. Love it a great deal, Arlo. We have been talking to you for almost uh, almost thirty minutes, and it's just been an absolute treat, uh, an absolute pleasure talking with you. We wish you the very, very best. Stay in touch with us. Let us know what you're doing. And if you ever want to come back on and just talk to us, maybe read some poems or sing or oh. whatever you want to do, just let us know, okay? I will indeed. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you so much. We've been talking to Arlo Parks. Her single is called Cola. She's got another single coming out in the new year and an EP. We're going to stay in touch with her. Do check out her music. If you if this is the first time you've heard it, then we highly recommend that you, you go and get her copy of uh, her music. Arlo, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much to my guests and a very big thank you to you for listening. Now, I know you're going to want to hear this show again, so we have a lot of options for you. You can go to NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Mixcloud and to lifeelsewhere.co. Plus, there's our affiliate stations who air this edition throughout the coming week. All the details are up at lifeelsewhere.co. And don't forget, your feedback is very important. Let me know what you think of the show. The nice lady will give you the email address in just a moment. Till next time, be well, be good, and always be nice. You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind-the-scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O.
You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind-the-scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Life Elsewhere is produced at the studios of WMNF Tampa.